Grace and Peace Sanctuary, it's good to be with you. So, this morning, I have to be brief. Bishop Ed called me yesterday, he said, how about how long are you going to take tomorrow? And I said, well, <laughs> I can take as long or as little as you want me to take today. And he said, well, I've got something that just kind of last minute I want to share. And so at the end of service today, he's going to come to us with uh, just a pastoral note from Bishop Ed, which we all appreciate, uh, which means we've got to get through some things rather quickly so that we're not here until 2 o'clock this afternoon. You know, there are some weeks when you're preparing to do this, and it's just like there is like having a, a kind of fire shut up in your bones, right, where there's just this thing you can't wait to put out into the world. It's a word that you believe is right. It's something that's kind of building up in you. It's coming to you from outside of yourself. And there's just this excitement about, about getting it out there, right? Um, this isn't one of those weeks. Uh, even still, there are some weeks when, you know, you have to kind of put in some work, but you still feel like you're on the right track and you're uh, putting in those hours of, of studying and praying and doing all of that. But it's, it, and it, it comes to you, but it just, it's a little more difficult. And even then, this wasn't one of those kinds of weeks. I mean, I was pretty lost on this all week. Not exactly sure what was supposed to happen in this moment. Um, and then on Friday night, I sat down to do some more studying, some more praying. And as I sat down, I made it to God help. And I fell dead asleep. Which isn't for nothing, right? I was, um, I was scrolling through Twitter this past week, and this gal, Joy Clarkson, reminded me that there was this time in Scripture when Elijah was so mad, he was screaming at God that he wanted to die. And God was like, here's some food. Why don't you rest? And so he eats, he sleeps, and decided that things weren't so bad. <laughs> Which is a way of saying that we should never underestimate the spiritual power of a nap and a snack, right? Um, there was lots of napping this week, and unfortunately, even more snacking. Today's lectionary texts, they do say something to us, if not maybe too much, about how we ought to live. One of the texts that we didn't hear today is from the Old Testament, and we're led to the story of God giving to Moses the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments become for us, a kind of ethic, right? A kind of guide for how we live our lives and how our lives are shaped and formed, how we, in turn, act in the world. Jesus summarized these commandments by instructing us to love God and to love your neighbor. Now, this is a pretty common theme for us here at Sanctuary, that as Christians, we are just so much more than what we think or what we believe. As James K. Smith would say, we are more than just brains on a stick, right? Which isn't to say that our thoughts and our ideas and our beliefs don't matter. We're not suggesting that. But 
somehow what we do actually takes some primacy in our lives. We exist in space, and what we do actually affects the lives of the people around us, both the things we do and the things we don't do. Like, it's good news that we don't murder one another. It's good news that we don't steal from one another. And then other times, it's good news that we do keep the Sabbath. It's good for us that we actually rest and we participate in that kind of practice. And so it's, it's a doing and also a not doing. So our faith, I would suggest to us today, is an embodied faith. It's a holistic faith that's not just concerned with our thinking the right thoughts, but it is intimately engaged in what we do. It's good news when we care for the poor. It's good news when we care for the sick. In another one of our texts for today, the prophet Isaiah reminds the people of God that you are the Lord's pleasant planting, is what he says to them. You are the vineyard dug on the fertile hill. And the fruit that God expects from that vineyard is justice and righteousness. But as Isaiah reminds us, God doesn't find justice and he doesn't find righteousness. Instead, he finds what he calls bloodshed and weeping. So we oftentimes think that if anything is going to be set right in the world, if anything is really going to change, if anything is actually going to get better, it will be because God will make it so. But we forget that we collectively are the people of God. That we are called to do justice, as Micah 6 reminds us. That if we want to know what Christ is doing in the world, what is the kingdom work that's actually happening, we just need to look around and see what are we doing as the people of God. And to be sure, God expects us to be about the work as Isaiah says, of justice and the work of righteousness. And to be sure, when we fail to do so, the work that we actually find in the world is bloodshed and weeping. You know, it's really easy to get legalistic about something like the Ten Commandments. <laughs> I mean, it even just sounds ominous, right? Like the Ten Commandments. But I think that these commandments, this law, and even Jesus' own summary of this law, again, to love God and love our neighbor, all of it has to do with where we put our hope. Or more exactly, they have to do with righting our misplaced hopes. Especially right now, we ought to consider exactly what our hopes are for the world. We ought to ask ourselves what system, what people do our hopes most align with? And if it's not aligned with the kingdom, we need to reevaluate. And in case that's too ambiguous, in case we are unsure what even the word kingdom means or what the kingdom looks like, it looks like Jesus. The kingdom looks like the sick being healed. 
It looks like the poor being fed. It looks like the demonized being delivered. It looks like the oppressed being set free. This is what the kingdom looks like. Our friend Brian Zahn, he says, the kingdom looks like outsiders given a seat at the table and hypocritical gatekeepers given their comeuppance. It looks like forgiveness for sinners and a feast for all. If you can embrace the newness, this hope, it looks like a party where water is turned into wine. But if you resist this newness, if you place your hope in other things, it looks like judgment day when the whip comes down and tables are flipped. Or as the great theologian Origen once said, Jesus is the kingdom in person. Again, I think our willingness to either embrace or to resist this kind of order has everything to do with our hopes for the world. And we see this as a kind of tension that happens over and over again in the scriptures. For example, in the book of Daniel, which is probably a book that we should all be spending a good deal of time in this year. It's a book about how we remain faithful as the people of God in a foreign land. And sometimes we all just need this reminder that we are in a foreign place. And in this book, King Nebuchadnezzar is building this huge golden image of himself. And then he has this nightmare that the stone that struck his golden image becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth. And he's searching for somebody to interpret this nightmare because he is so tormented by it, by the idea that his image is the one that's going to be destroyed by this mountain that's going to come and be established on the earth. If this sounds familiar to you, it's because the prophet Isaiah has a very similar vision, but he calls it a dream a dream about the mountain of the house of the Lord that will be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And he says that all of the nations shall flow to it. It's the same vision. But where our hopes are aligned actually shift us from seeing this as a dream for the world or as a nightmare, as something that torments us. So we have to evaluate. When the kingdom comes into view, do we see it as a dream or is it a torment to us? Is it a nightmare? And I think that so long as our hopes are misaligned, so long as our hopes are inappropriately placed in any other system or any other power or any earthly kingdom, the kingdom of God will always torment us to some extent. The great trap that we are all at risk of falling victim to is putting too much hope in any of our systems or party affiliations or rulers who claim for themselves what God has already promised to Jesus, that Christ is king and his kingdom will have no end. You know, we're coming up to the end of the election something that we should keep in mind. This is the election season. Uh, November, beginning of November is not the election. It is the end of the election, right? 
And we would do well, we've said this before in this house, even from this space here, we have said before that we need to do well to remember that we elect our Caesars, not our saviors. These are our Caesars. And the tension that we are living in is that our Caesars are always the people who try to claim for themselves what Christ has claimed for himself. Again, that the earth is the Lord's, that Christ is king, and his kingdom will have no end. So I think to live faithfully in this moment is to see ourselves as people who always need to hold intention, who always need to live in a bit of opposition to these powers that be. No matter who sits in that office or what seat they sit in, that we should always be suspicious, that we should always keep them at an arm's length, to never too closely and too tightly align ourselves with them. Because again, we elect our Caesars, not our saviors. I'll accept that as an amen. So how do we do this? One, we remember that our hope is in Christ and our citizenship is in heaven. We do this by taking seriously our baptism. We remember that in baptism, our identities are washed away and that our identity is now rooted in the life and the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus, that as the baptized, we become the body of Christ. We become a people who do not have a kind of politic, but we are a politic in the world. We do this by confessing that we, as the baptized, do not belong to this age, that we belong to an age to come, that we belong to a different time and we belong to a different people in a different place altogether. You know, my wife and I, we dated for a really long time. Now, granted, I was 15 and she was 16 when we started dating. So you kind of have to date for a long time if that's going to go anywhere. Um, but it was something like seven years that we dated. And part of that is because we were long distance. I lived in Indiana. She lived here in Tulsa. But as our relationship got more serious, as the years start to tick by on how long we've been dating, there comes a time where you have to make a decision, <laughs> where you have to decide, okay, how serious are we about this thing? And then that doesn't end all the questions. That actually ignites and starts a whole new round of questions about what we are going to do about it. So we're dating, and all of a sudden we have to do things like, well, I had to get her an engagement ring. I had to make a plan on how I was actually going to propose to her. I had to have those really wonderful, uncomfortable conversations with her dad. Can I have permission to marry your daughter? There were things that I had to do because I saw a future with this woman. It wasn't realized yet. It was a hope that I had for the two of us. 
And for that hope to actually be realized for us, I had to do something about it. This is what I'm talking about today. And now on the other side of that, it doesn't mean that our action is, is done. But now that we're married, loving her and being married to her means that I do certain things to stay married to her. As Bishop Ed has said, you come home at night. <laughs> I kiss her to show her that I love her. I'm affectionate with her. But then I also do things like take out the trash and I do the dishes. Total side note to the dads in the room. Our kids should see us serving our families in these ways. Moms, this was a great time for your amen. It will never be odd for my daughter to see me running the vacuum or to see me doing the dishes or folding the laundry because at the Pano's house, we do what we do for one another. These aren't extra chores. This is just what it is to participate in the Pano household. <laughs> So we ought to ask ourselves, if we belong to this house, if we belong to these people, what are we doing to show that we're committed to this place and to one another? What are we doing in the world to show that we belong to a different kind of kingdom, to a different kind of place, a different kind of people? Because in the same way, if we claim to be citizens of the kingdom of God, we can't divorce our citizenship from our action and from our participation with that kingdom. This is the story that we're given even in our, our gospel text today, that Jesus tells this story of the vineyard owner and these tenants, and then he looks at the Pharisees and he tells them that the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from them. These people who've, who've functioned and acted as some kind of gatekeepers to the kingdom that he tells them that the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and it's going to be given to a people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. There's a reason they wanted to kill Jesus. But whatever the fruits of the kingdom are, which is a kind of question for us, we can be sure that they are aligned with the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Gentleness is not something we see a whole lot of these days. And self-control. So if you're wondering just how exactly we got here from the Ten Commandments, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit and then says in his letter to the Galatians, Against such things, there is no law. So the work that we do as citizens has to be the work of love and joy and peace. The work of patience and kindness and goodness, of faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is my hope for us as the sanctuary community, is that we can be people who are about this kind of work in the world. People who are willing to struggle for this kind of fruit and wish to see this fruit actually produced in other people as well. 
to want to see peace experienced in the lives of those who have known no peace. To see joy in those who have been so far removed from experiencing joy. My final thought for us today is that if we commit and if we marry this reality, we have to expect, to expect that we will experience rejection. To resist allegiance to anything but the kingdom inevitably means that those who have made other allegiances will see you as an outsider. And outsiders are threatening. Outsiders don't carry the same values. Outsiders tend to question the status quo. Well, why has this always been this way? What if there's a new way? What if there's a kingdom way? Outsiders tend to be subversive, and outsiders don't tend to fit neatly into the categories of the other would-be kingdoms. So if you find yourself having a hard time explaining exactly who or what sanctuary is to other people, that's okay. We're okay with that. I think that means that on some level we are doing something right. I think that means that when we do something right, what I mean is that we're doing something faithful. It may mean rejection, but again, in the words of Bishop Ed, we are committed to this no matter who it separates us from or associates us with. My prayer is that when God's mountain comes to town, that we have the vision to see this as our dream and not our nightmare. So let's get to work. Amen.